You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Let's pray. Father, would you answer this request, our confession of need for you, that you'd meet it with your presence, with the, the work of your Holy Spirit to comfort us where we are weary, to teach us where we need to grow, to speak to us through your word, that we might gain understanding, and more than just mental assent, that we might experience true change of heart because of your work through your word in your people. Would you encourage us this morning? Would you challenge us this morning? Would you build us up so that in just a few minutes as we are scattered back to the places where we live and work, that we would be equipped and built up and encouraged for all that you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You can have a seat this morning. Uh, good morning, River City. I know you all got an extra hour of sleep, you time travelers, so good morning. It's a little better. We'll get there. We are now in the final leg of our study in First and Second Thessalonians. We completed First Thessalonians last week. We're going to look at Second Thessalonians over the next three weeks. We're looking at both of these letters from Paul together under the overall theme or series title, Using the line from the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, we've just stolen it straight up. And the line is this, strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. Because that's what Paul's doing. He's encouraging a young church to have courage and strength in the midst of persecution and hardship with a bright hope for the future, the glory that will be revealed when Christ comes to make all things new. That's what Paul's helping this church see and what I think we can take from it. 2 Thessalonians was written probably not too long after 1 Thessalonians, likely just a few months later. It's also likely that Paul was writing this letter from the city of Corinth where he was. After he sent the first letter, word came back to Paul that the things, the concerns that he had for them, the concerns that they had for themselves had kind of gotten worse The persecution for their faith in Jesus had gotten worse. Their confusion about the end times and Jesus' future return had gotten worse. The threat of idleness from the surrounding culture seeping into the church had gotten worse. And so each chapter of this second letter, uh, Paul addresses one of those areas of concern. In chapter 1, he seems to address persecution and suffering in light of God's justice. In chapter 2, he's bringing clarity to some confusion that's spreading about Jesus' return. And in chapter 3, there's an exhortation, a challenge, if you will, to those who are idle. And so each section or chapter kind of closes with a prayer of blessing. Each one has a little mini benediction built into it, and we'll see that here in our chapter today. So the overall theme for 2 Thessalonians is pretty much the same as first, encouragement and hope, reminding them of their future hope, 
shapes their current actions. So if we were to take our theme of strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow and just turn it around, bright hope for tomorrow gives strength for today. That's what Paul's hoping to to, to encourage them with. So we're going to look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 this morning. If you need a Bible, sorry there's a long intro, the strike team's like waiting patiently to hand out Bibles. If you need a Bible, you can slip your hand up and they'd love to, to give one to you. If you don't have one, please take this one with you. Um, we'd love to have you read along. Um, many of the scriptures will be on the screen as well this morning. The whole chapter is only 12 verses. It includes a brief greeting as good letters do. And then moves to Thanksgiving and that, that Thanksgiving as is Uh, common in Paul's letters is the springboard for what he wants to then talk about next. In this case, making sure that the Thessalonians rightly understand God's righteousness and God's justice, especially as it relates to the current suffering that they're experiencing and the future justice that Christ will bring at His coming. Now, you might not know this, but today, this morning even, There are brothers and sisters around the globe who are persecuted and harmed for their faith in Jesus. Their homes and their belongings are burned. Their families are are harmed or hurt or, or kidnapped even in cases. Their lives are threatened because they dare to believe that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners and rise again to eternal life. How dare they? And the first Sunday in November is often dedicated as a day of prayer for the Church of Christ being persecuted around the globe. And we don't want to miss that this morning. And so it's fitting that today we get to look at what Paul has to say about God's perfect justice in the face of persecution. Looking at many places around the world where Christians right this morning, today, are threatened and killed for their faith. Looking at that and even dialing it all the way back closer to home where the culture in the West is crumbling in some places where biblical truth and fidelity to the gospel message is ridiculed as foolish. We can ask when looking at all those things on behalf of the church around the globe and in our own circumstances, where is God's justice? Paul wants to encourage the Thessalonians and all Christians who are today suffering physical harm for their faith in Jesus and for us. As we face growing opposition and future persecution for holding to the trustworthy word as taught, that we can be challenged and encouraged with this hope, that Christ will bring about full and final justice when he returns. Therefore, in light of that, we can endure affliction today, bringing glory to God. Let me say that again. Christ will bring about full and final justice when he returns. Therefore, we can endure affliction today, bringing glory to God. To God. So let's unpack our let's read our text today and then we'll unpack it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1, <clears throat> 1 through 12. Starting in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Verse 5, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God 
that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day, to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Excuse me. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word for us this morning. Now we're going to look at the text today in three points. God's justice, what it means to be considered worthy, and the whole reason Paul gives, so that Jesus is glorified. And this doesn't roll easily from top to bottom in this chapter, verse 1 to verse 12. The text kind of seems to work from the middle out, where in the middle section, the primary thrust of Paul's encouragement has to do with God being just and bringing about justice. And then on both sides, he talks about what it means to be considered worthy of suffering and worthy of the kingdom. And then outside of that, the double-decker sandwich, if you will, the outside bread, is related to the glory of of Jesus. So that's how we're going to tackle the text today. We're going to look at the center part of the text first, which is kind of Paul's primary argument, which is God's justice. Look, you can find it there starting in verse 5. Paul is reminding them that God is indeed completely just and that he will bring about justice to full and final resolution when Jesus returns in glory. And this is what Paul says, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. And in a moment, we'll talk about what Paul means about those who are considered worthy of the kingdom. Verse 6, Paul says, Since indeed God considers it just, he considers it right, to repay with affliction those who afflict you. This gives us a glimpse of, of how God sees the scales of justice, right? God considers it fair and right to afflict those who are afflicting others, Paul says. In verse 7, By the way, that's God doing the afflicting, not us. Just want to be really clear on that. Verse 7, and to grant relief to those who are afflicted, Paul says, as well as to us. So God considers it from his perspective fair, just, to punish the wicked and considers it fair and right to comfort and bring relief to those who have been afflicted. God's saying, from my perspective, it is my prerogative and it is good honorable and right justice to defend those who are afflicted and to, in a sense, punish those who are doing the affliction. This is both retributive and restorative justice kind of all mingled together here. God doesn't overlook sin. He doesn't overlook evil. And he doesn't neglect the harassed and the helpless. God is perfect in his justice. Paul says, we will all see this perfect justice. Look at verse 7. 
when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Y'all didn't know you were coming to a brimstone sermon this morning, right? This is the day of the Lord that Paul has mentioned before. When Christ descends, he comes with his angels and with fire to consume his enemies. Verse 8, inflicting vengeance. Remember, this is just punishment. On who? Verse 8, those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, these aren't two classes of bad people. These are two qualities of those who have set themselves up as enemies of God. They don't know Him. And because they do not know Him, they don't obey Him. If they knew Him, they would obey Him. Jesus says this a lot in the New Testament. If you love me, He says, right? But they don't. So, they inflict and afflict evil on others. They oppress others. They harm others for their own gain. And God promises... Justice will be served. Now, what does that justice look like? Verse 9. Paul says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. What does that mean? See, one of the attributes of God that is unique to God is that He is omnipresent. What that means is there is no place or space where God is not. And yet, in his interaction with humanity, from our perspective, there are many instances where God makes himself present and known to people as a grace. Even the worst places here on earth are still under God's common grace. The fact that the rain falls on those who are just and unjust, the fact that the, that the sun warms the face of both the righteous and the wicked is God's common grace on this side of eternity, to all creation. God is always present. And His grace, even His common grace, is present. So while there is no place where God, as one who is omnipresent, is not, there is a real sense of His hand, His protection, and His blessing that He can remove. If you recall the, the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, God made His presence known to them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to lead his people. God's presence came down and filled the temple, the scriptures tell us, at times when Moses would go into the tabernacle or the priest would go into the Holy of Holies and that his presence would fill that place. And maybe a more fitting one is that God's presence would leave the temple, signifying that God was removing His hand of blessing when His people were being led off into exile for disobedience. The prophets weep as they see that God's presence had actually left the temple. So while God is present everywhere, He makes His blessing known and can remove that blessing and protection from them. That's kind of the picture here in 2 Thessalonians of God's final judgment on the wicked, that there will be a place where God has removed His hand of protection and grace away from even the residual light of His glory. The picture in the book of Revelation is one of a lake of fire that never burns out. The light and the heat is not from God's glory, but is instead a a furnace, an incinerator of judgment. 
This is the future and eternal fulfillment of Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, God tells us through the Apostle Paul that God has now turned over the wicked to the desires of their hearts. That without the gracious hand of God to restrain the worst of our evil, He justly allows it to consume them. He gives them what they desire. This is an eternal and unending destruction. Now, there are other rabbit trails we could take as it relates to hell and eternal destruction. We're not going to go there this morning. But for us here from 2 Thessalonians, what we should know is that God will be just. And He will give the wicked not only what they deserve, but the culmination of what they desire, which will ultimately destroy them forever. That's the picture of justice that God is giving us through Paul here in 2 Thessalonians. And when will that happen? Well, it gets kicked off verse 10 when he comes on that day. So what will be a day of judgment for some, verse 10 says, will actually be a day of glory for others. Look at what he says. Verse 10 continues. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Jesus Christ receives glory on that day, not merely for the justice on the wicked, but glory and glorified for all those who believe. See, for those who do not know God and do not believe the gospel and obey that gospel, there's destruction. But for those who know Him and are known by Him, who have believed the gospel, glory. So Paul's encouraging us to remember that God is never slow to be just. God is never unfair in His justice. God hates injustice and evil, and God has compassion on the afflicted. These are true things about God that are always true. So Paul here kind of gently grabs the face of the Thessalonians, if you follow my analogy here for a second, and maybe ours as well a little bit. Oh, I shouldn't touch the microphone. Right, kind of grabs us and kind of lifts our eyes in the midst of hardship to see that even if it seems slow now, just wait. When Jesus comes in glory, all that is wrong will finally be made right. In 1 Peter chapter 4, the Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of God, uh, excuse me, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. In a sense, there's some suffering, like it's your own dang fault. Don't, don't suffer because of your own sin or foolishness. If you're going to suffer, Peter says, sorry, I just inserted, I should have just let Peter speak, but that's what he means. Verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian... For your faith, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Verse 17, for it is time for, the, for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Paul already tells us, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 
So, so God is always perfectly good in his justice, and we can entrust our souls to our faithful creator and continue to do the good that he calls us to do, even while we wait for his justice to be finally revealed on that day. And Peter's words here add an interesting element. He says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. This isn't the only time we see Peter rejoicing in, this, in sharing the sufferings for Jesus' sake. In Acts chapter 5, we read that Peter and the apostles were thrown in prison for preaching the gospel. And an angel came, broke them out of prison, and the next morning they went back to the council that put them in prison to preach the gospel some more. I love that. Oh, you threw us in jail. Okay. They go back, and a well-respected teacher of the law, Gamaliel, stands up and says, now if their plan and message, if these, if these disciples of Jesus, if their plan and message is of man, it'll fail. And he gives an example of someone else who rose up a crowd, but then he died and his, his movement kind of fizzled out. But, he says, if, if it's of God, then it, it can't fail and if it is of God, then you'll find yourself being on the wrong team, essentially. So rather than throwing them back in prison, Acts 5 tells us this. So they took his advice, Gamaliel's advice, and they had called the apostles. They beat them, likely with uh, rods, wooden sticks. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council, get this, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Speaking of the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. So we find that same language in our text today, which kind of leads from our first point that God is and will always be just to, to one layer out now, helping the church see what it means to be considered worthy to suffer. Look at verse 5. He says, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. The suffering that you're experiencing is directly related to your participation in the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. The suffering that they're experiencing is directly related to their participation in the kingdom of God. So follow me here. God's justice is on display in our suffering for the gospel, because it's showing us that we are participants in the kingdom. Suffering and persecution for Christ is a mark that we bear as partakers of the promise of the gospel and as partakers in the kingdom. Which is why Paul says in verse 11, as he begins his benediction for this chapter, to this end we always pray for you. To what end? that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Suffering for the gospel, persecution for Christ, is not evidence that God has abandoned us, but actually just the opposite. It serves as evidence that we actually belong to him. Remember what Paul already said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We read it a couple of uh, weeks ago, or yeah, two weeks ago. For God has not destined us for wrath, but what? But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with 
him. In life and in death, we'll be with him, period. And so our participation in suffering for the gospel is evidence of our participation in the kingdom. Not only is it evidence that we belong to him, but will be used as evidence God will later use against those who hate him when he returns. Think about it. Standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And he looks at those who are in Christ, who are covered by the blood of the Lamb, and he says, blessed are you, welcome into the rest of your Father. And to those who aren't in Christ Jesus, we've talked about this before too, the the list of evils that are counted up among them. One of those lists will be the way they afflicted God's people. So the suffering of the saints is exhibit A in the courtroom of judgment against Satan and against all those who hate God and his gospel. And there's something beautiful in suffering that we don't want to miss here. Because there's something that God is doing in us. So we can look at persecution and suffering as a two-sided coin. On one side, we can know that God will be just. He will always repay all evil that is done for the sake of the gospel. We know that he'll be just. And then the other side of that coin, we can rejoice that although we might be hated for the gospel, it means that God counts us as participants in his kingdom. As an aside, the suffering that they're experiencing is for the gospel message, not because their methods are cold and unloving. Or as Peter says, not suffering as an evildoer or as a meddler. If we are to be persecuted, let us be persecuted for the truth of our message, not for the harshness of our delivery of that message. Our goal is not to win the argument, but by the power of the Holy Spirit that we might win the heart. So we present the truth with courage, in love, with a humble confidence that God's Word will do its work by the Holy Spirit to transform hearts and save sinners. Now, back to the text. Verse five, verse, uh, excuse me, verses 5 and 11. This idea of being considered worthy is an often overlooked aspect of suffering and persecution, at least for us in the comfortable West. I've said this before. We are culturally conditioned to avoid suffering and hardship. I'll go one step further. You can email me if you'd like. We worship at the altar of safety and security. Now, I'm not advocating living a life of foolishness or recklessness. Right? I, I wear a seatbelt and I take a vitamin. I should work out more, right? But there's something here that our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ in history and all around the world have tapped into that we alarmingly have not that there can and maybe should be less fear and more rejoicing when others are at odds with God and His Word and it results in the persecution of believers because it means that we are aligned with the kingdom of God. It tells us and those around us that we belong to Him. So Paul was resetting their vision here, and maybe ours a little bit, that suffering, persecution, and ridicule, and scoffing for the gospel is worth it. That suffering for the gospel, for the kingdom, is not a failure of God's justice. That God is doing something through suffering and through persecution and through someone looking side at us because we would dare believe that men and women are sinners in need of a Savior. 
that we have only one hope and it's not in our own works. It has to be because someone else is doing something, has done something, and is doing something on our behalf. God is doing something through suffering, which is a readying, a sanctifying work in us. And that's this already and not yet tension to suffering. We are made worthy and welcomed into the kingdom by Christ Jesus in a once and for all moment. Period. And we are made worthy for that same kingdom by the Spirit's work in us. And part of the worthy making for the kingdom part comes through being aligned with Jesus. They rejected Jesus. They will reject His disciples. Jesus Himself says it. They hated you. They hated me first. And there's a lot more to unpack here than we have time for. But it's clear that while Paul focuses his reminder of God's justice that he will repay those who afflict and give relief to those afflicted, he frames that in. He sandwiches it between the reminder that suffering and persecution for the gospel, for the truth, for God's word, is consistent with God's goodness and is indeed used by God to show his people to be holy, to show his message to be worth suffering for. It's one of the reasons Paul boasts in this young group of churches. We read it at the beginning. Why do we boast about you amongst the other churches? Because you received the gospel in affliction and it's gotten worse and you're continuing to be faithful. That is evidence that the gospel itself is a powerful message. And so we're boasting in the fact that God's using you and preserving you in the midst of much hardship. It's worth suffering for, which is why Paul can later say in Romans chapter 5 that not only that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces what? Endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, Paul says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. First, Paul wants to remind us that God is just and always does justice. Second, that those who suffer are considered and are being made worthy of the kingdom of God. And third and finally, Jesus is glorified. Make no mistake, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, the chief uh, end of man, to the question, what is the chief end of man? The answer is this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And don't be uh, surprised God's chief end is the same, to glorify Him and enjoy Himself forever. See, there's danger in both our good works and in our suffering to make life and the meaning of life about us. And Paul makes sure that the Thessalonians don't make that mistake. Paul prays for these sisters and brothers, verses 11 and 12. This is his kind of benediction at the end of this chapter. That God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good work and every work of faith by his power. This is Paul praying that their efforts, that their faith-fueled efforts would succeed, (laughs) that you would flourish, that your good intentions in the gospel, that your good works in faith would grow. And these are the things he highlighted earlier. They have a growing love for one another. They're faithful. They're enduring in suffering. They have humble courage and hospitality. They're doing good to all, right? Even those who persecute them. Paul's praying that those efforts would succeed. Why? Verse 12. Why would I pray 
that God would make you worthy, that he would fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Why? 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. This is a blessing for you, Thessalonians, but it's not about you. Paul hinted at this back in verse 3. He goes, we give thanks to God because your faith is growing. Your love for one another is increasing. You're steadfast. You have faith in the midst of persecution. Here's what Paul's saying. When we have faith, when we live by faith in the midst of affliction, when we love one another, when, when our faith grows, when we're able to endure, that makes God look glorious. Not you, not me. Verse 12, this is according to the grace of God at work in your life. See, there's lots of people, even in this room, I know we're relatively young as a church. But there's lots of people in this room who have endured significant hardship and loss and even persecution. And I ask myself, every loss that I've experienced, big and small, there's been a moment, and if you've experienced this kind of loss and by God's grace have endured by faith, you've probably asked the same too. How, without the grace of God, without faith in a benevolent and good and faithful and just and righteous God, without this anchor of faith, I have no idea how someone survives this. And yet, Right? How does someone endure miscarriage or cancer or threats to life and livelihood because of holding to the gospel without the firm anchor of faith in a God who is always good and always just? See, Paul prays that suffering would make us worthy of the calling of God, that he would fulfill our desires for good, he would fulfill the work of our hands that comes from faith so that Jesus would be glorified in us. And here's the beautiful bonus and you in him, he writes. Jesus is glorified in you and you in him. There is a partaking in the glory of Jesus as we live and work and believe by faith according to God's grace at work within us. If it wasn't enough that we just get to be hidden in him, that his glory gets to radiate and we just get to disappear as a tiny little speck in the glory of God, that's good enough, honestly. And yet, we're welcome to partake as he is now glorified in us and us in him. God is always working all things for his glory. And lest, you seem, lest that seem self-serving, the uncreated and sovereign God is the only one who is not out of line in bringing glory to himself because he is the only one supremely, worship, supremely worthy of worship and glory. So if the promise of God's just repayment of the wicked isn't enough to help us in our suffering, to know God will avenge me, if that's not enough, if the reminder that God is doing something in us and through us in our suffering, which will by his grace result in our growth, if that's not good enough to help us in our suffering, then perhaps the reminder of the blinding glory of God and the absolutely incredible promise that we, who are in Christ Jesus, get to be partakers of His glory, maybe that will be enough to help us see the beauty and worth of endurance in suffering. Which is how Paul can say in Romans chapter 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth 
comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. This is the kind of suffering he's talking about. Evil people doing evil things, hating God, despising the gospel, doing harm to the church. And Paul says, this is hard. This is really hard at times. But compared to glory, <laughs> we, can't, we can't even try to compare it. It, it. it doesn't exist compared to glory. So we're encouraged, like in Paul's previous letter, to keep being faithful, keep loving one another, work hard as unto the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain. And even in the midst of a culture that is increasingly post-Christian, even in a growing in opposition to the gospel, in opposition to God's word, the reality of growing persecution, even in the West, particularly uh, among the worlds continuing to happen in the, around the globe. And compared to that, we haven't really experienced what the Thessalonians were experiencing or what many sisters and brothers around the globe are fighting for even this morning, worshiping in secret in quiet, right? But perhaps there are a couple takeaways for us. I've pulled out three. One, maybe we would, should be and could be more moved to pray more earnestly for the church around the world that lives and worships under threats and persecution, praying for endurance and faithfulness for them, that God would protect them and deliver them from evil, but that He also would be glorified in their sufferings as they are made worthy of the calling. Maybe God would do that in our hearts, as we pray for them. Two, maybe there's a readiness working in us to endure hardship as the culture here in our context continues to drift away from God, knowing that God will always be just, that He will always deal with those who do all kinds of evil, even if we have to wait for final justice that will fall as Jesus returns in power and glory. Maybe there's a readiness for us that is happening. And then three, as we wait, may our faith grow, that we would have grace to see that God will never abandon us, that in our affliction, God is doing something in us and through us so we can be bold as lions, willing to risk being called foolish or hated, and we can be as gentle as doves, that we can seek to reach the heart of our neighbor in kindness while being courageous and upholding the truth. So when afflictions come as they will, we, by God's grace, will not cry out asking God, why is He delayed? Where is His justice? But we will have confidence that Christ will bring about all full and final justice when He returns so that we can endure affliction today by faith and bring God much glory. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You that You are good and just, that You always do good. We thank you for the promise of Jesus' return. That there is an anchor in our bright future hope that gives us strength for today. We thank you, Father, that you might consider us worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Would you fulfill and answer Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians among us? That that you, God, would make us worthy of your calling, that you would fulfill our every resolve for good, that you would establish the work of our hands in faith by your power so that Jesus would be glorified. Holy Spirit, would you bring both conviction and comfort as we come to the table for communion? Thank you that you hear us. In Jesus' name.
Amen.